like what I wanted to do was take a few minutes and go back to something from last week and revisit it and be sure that I have not left any wrong impressions because we all see differently. We all live on different spots of the mountain and just as in the proverbial car crash at the intersection and you happen to be on one corner and somebody else is on a different corner and yet another person is on yet another one of those four corners, each one of them is going to report something a little bit different. In fact, there's a Christmas song, I guess, if I said, uh, do you see what I see? Would you recognize those words? What if I sang it? Do you see what I see? You'd know that was the Christmas song, Do You Hear What I Hear? How many of you know we don't all see the same thing? And this is why I have endeavored, especially in this series, to teach you to think critically, to question. Our text is in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. And so if you would join me there. My concern is over some exegesis. From last week. The word exegesis means an explanation or critical interpretation of text. But what I want to be sure of is that I didn't eisegesis the text. Now I'm not trying to be cute and hold off on any scriptures until I'm there. There really is a word called eisegesis. And as you might imagine, it means something similar, but just a little bit different from exegesis. Again, exegesis means an explanation or critical interpretation of a text. Eisegesis means the interpretation of a text by reading into it one's own ideas. Last week when we were in Hebrews, I could tell that there was a little bit of pushback in some of the things that I was saying, that maybe some, because of religious tradition and Sunday school teaching and just what we are familiar with, felt maybe I was eisegesising the text instead of exegeting it. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7, and the question that we're going to pose and answer here is, is the old covenant still relevant? You'll remember I was using an example of holding up my Bible and saying this is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and this is the New Covenant, and then read through this chapter and gave you some very poignant comments about it. Well, let's return first to the verses and read them, and then I'll re-comment. Verse 7 of chapter 8 of Hebrews, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one that I made with their ancestors. When I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and so I turned my back on them. Notice. As a result of disobedience, God turned his back. God's behavior was precipitated by theirs. Lock that in. 
Also lock in that he made a covenant with his people. But it certainly seems to say that that covenant was failing. In fact, first sentence, verse 7, read it out loud with me, please. We'll have it on the board here so that everybody can join me. Verse 7, Jerry, and this is New Living, correct? Thank you. Everybody on the count of three. One, two, three. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant. So last week we talked about how that the first covenant, this part, had fault and needed to be replaced with this part. Right? Remember that conversation? Some of you are saying, yes, made perfect sense to me. Others of you wrestled with it a little bit because it was so different from the way that you have been raised to appreciate the Bible. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. But this is the new covenant. This is the, there's an old and there's a new. This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws In their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. And I submit to you that we've had our evangelism messed up. As a result... What I just read is very clear. Our evangelistic messages of going and confronting people with their moral behavior and telling them, you need to change, you need to come to Jesus, you need to know the Lord, is missing something. Because he said in the new covenant, I'm going to put, I'm going to put a revelation about me in their hearts. I'm going to put it in their minds. And I'm going to begin to teach them. And then in the book of Acts in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, it says that the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh. And that was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, where Joel prophesied that in the last days, saith the Lord, my spirit shall be poured out on all flesh. Not just Christians, not just churchgoers. How many of you hear me? But on your neighbor, on your coworker, on your family members that you just had Thanksgiving and are plotting and trying to figure out, dear Lord, how am I going to make it through Christmas? <laughs> yeah, those family members, the Lord has poured his spirit out on. He's put his laws in their mind. He's done something that's new and different from the old. Let's keep reading verse 12. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember again, or I will never again remember their sins. Now, does that just include churchgoers? Does that include the sinner? The people we call sinners. Does that include your neighbor? Does that include that individual at work that you just can't stand being around? You wish they'd get fired. I mean, if it comes to it, you want to get fired and you'll just go get a different job, but you've got to get out of there and not be, you know what I mean? God poured his spirit out on them. 
God's forgiven their... When does God forgive sins? When you ask Him to? Or did He do it once for all when Jesus died on the cross? Verse 12, and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. Verse 13, oh, watch this. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he made the first obsolete. And now it's out of date and it will soon disappear. See, this agrees with what the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians in his letter to the church at Colossae. He says in verse 13, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature. You were cut away, or excuse me, your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all your sins. When does he do that? Does he do that when you're up at the altar crying Responding to a call full of guilt and shame. And then if you speak the right words, and you know, every church has it a little bit different what you need to say. Every denomination teaches that you need to do it a little bit different. Some say you got to get water baptized along with it. Others say that it's not really meaningful. It doesn't really Uh, forgive your sins unless you do it in the name of Jesus only well who are we to believe how about just the Bible that Jesus came Jesus died he was buried he rose again and in that act he took the not sins it's not plural he took the sin of the world As a lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. He took our sin. He took the nature of sin. He took the very creature of sin. He he took the DNA of sin and he killed it in his body. He hung on a cross for you and me. And he went down to that grave and it was buried. And he rose again. Look at verse 14. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing... Do we have that on the screen? Jerry, that's also New Living. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14, if you can find that. Verse 14, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. What was the record of charges against you? Where were those charges against you? That record. The old covenant. All the things that the Lord commanded you and I live by that we weren't living by. All the commandments that we had broken. There was a record. It was against you. And the Bible says Jesus took not only the record of your sins, but he took the very old covenant itself with all of its do's and don'ts, its shame, its guilt, its touch not, taste not, handle not. And he, there on that cross, took it and cut it and buried it and destroyed it. Scripture says he canceled 
the record of the charges. Has anybody in the room ever been to court? Okay. <laughs> Have you ever, on the journey to the judge, had an opportunity to meet with one of the pre-judge personalities, individuals, right? They have those. Where you can negotiate and actually get the charges canceled if you agree to something else. Jesus came and canceled the charges that were against you. Not only did he do that, he then took the law code itself that describes all the wrong. The law code that tells us all of the things that we do wrong every day. And he took that and he nailed it to the cross. He canceled not only the record, but the record of the law and how it's kept. Verse 15, in this way, he disarmed. In this way, by what he did on the cross, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them in the cross. Did we ever get that, Jerry? Colossians, would you throw it up there? Verse 14. What is so incredible about this is that all my life I've been taught that all Scripture is equal. All Scripture has the same weight. And therefore, everything I read, whether it's in the old or the new, applies to me today. I don't know if I'm making things worse this morning or... <laughs> He canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. What do you think he did when he hung there? I've always thought he was appeasing God's anger. He wasn't. I always thought he was appeasing God's wrath. That had he not done what he was done, God was going to take me and squash me like a bug and throw me into hell. He wasn't. He was doing what was in God's plan and heart before the foundation of the earth. He was being a lamb slain. And he took all of that performance and obedience and the law code that it all centered around. Remember, prior in the Old Covenant, if they disobeyed, God would turn his back on them. But now there's a new covenant. He flips that. He takes all that law code and then all the charges against you, and he cancels it and nails it to the cross. He pays the penalty for it and then rises from the dead and gives that forgiveness and new life to you and to me. So that Paul then writes, we are in Jesus Christ. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. When? When you pray the prayer? When you go to a Billy Graham service? When you go over to your neighbors and they hold your hand and they pray the prayer with you and you repent? Or are we talking about an objective reality that it's done? It's done by God's faith. It's real and done now. And you and I simply need to walk into it by accepting what he did. It's done. So the example I used last week of old covenant, new covenant, this is obsolete and no longer relevant, here's where you live, I want to correct something there. I want to be faithful with the exegesis of Hebrews 8. It's not actually all of this, and we're getting this on camera, right? (laughs) It's not the whole Old Testament versus the New Testament in terms of the writings. It's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There's still many, many precious things in the Old Testament. Old Testament writings, Old Testament prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs. They're precious. We, we can gain spiritual instruction from it. We can live. They taught in the early church. I told you last week, remember, in the, in the early church, they never had this. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a collection of 66 books bound in leather that they preached out of and taught people the gospel from. They taught the gospel from the Old Covenant. From the Old Testament, whatever they could get their hands on in terms of the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, and of course the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. But inside of those first five books, the Pentateuch, is a description of what? The Old Covenant. And then that way of thinking and that way of relating to God and what God will do if you disobey. He'll judge and he'll curse. That whole system of old covenant law, obedience, wrath, anger, destruction was spelled out and was the overarching mentality and attitude of everybody under the old covenant. Even though in the Old Testament there are wonderful passages of Scripture, whole books that are very full of life and meaningful for us today, instruction for us to live by, we don't throw it away. It just does not have the same weight or importance as all of that that was written since under the new covenant with a new day, with a new understanding, and a post the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we now live in Christ. The Old Testament and all of those scriptures was written out of a not in Christ. It was written out of a looking for the Christ. It was written out of a relationship with God of uh, disobedience, obedience. But in the New Covenant, blessing comes before obedience.
in the new covenant, the whole thing has changed. You're not forgiven because you say the prayer. You're forgiven because God, by faith, chose to die for you and take your sins and hang on a cross and go into the grave and be resurrected by the power of Jesus Christ. That's our forgiveness. I said something also last week that I want to rephrase just to be sure you get it. Now, let me first tell you where I heard it. Because, you know, I'm nobody. So when I say things like this, you know, but if a somebody says it, and then I repeat it, then I'm not as bad. At least I'm in concert with the somebody, and I don't feel completely like a nobody. I was sitting in a group of ministers, probably about three, four hundred ministers and uh, uh, volunteers and department heads and elders and so forth in, in, in a sanctuary, large sanctuary, listening to Andy Stanley live, in person. And I'm taking notes, and he's going along. And then he says this. The Bible is not the foundation of your faith. Boy, I stopped taking notes. I looked up. What? What do you mean the Bible is not the foundation of my faith? Everything I know about God. Every... The way I pray, the way I live my life, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the... Isn't that interesting that that was written in a letter to the Romans and for 350 years, they never had that in a collection of books, but they lived it and practiced it by simply hearing it repeated, but they had nothing. See, we think that that verse means that you got to have the Bible in front of you and you have to repeat chapter and verse. And oh, you have to say it enough times and you have to say it with the right tone of voice. And then you have to say it with enough aggressiveness and force and power. If you don't do that, then it doesn't have meaning. I mean, God won't hear it. It won't really change the atmosphere. Really. <laughs> what did they do before they had this? Did the... Did faith still come by hearing and hearing by the word before they had this? See, that's my question. This is where I want you to stop and think about what you read and think critically and analyze and put some exegesis to the things that you read and realize that when we call this the word, that this alone is the word. It isn't. It's the scriptures. That's why it says all scripture is given by inspiration. Jesus is the word. Oh, I just don't have enough time to preach all this this morning. I was going to keep it short and then go on to some fun things. So listen to me now. So I'm sitting there and Andy makes it. The Bible is not the foundation of your... Boy, does he have my attention now. I'm sitting there. I scoot up to the edge of my seat because I'm ready to either brand this guy a heretic or hear one of the most incredible revelations that I have ever heard a man of God speak. And he finished it and said, an event is. Do 
Now, I attempted to say that last week, and I got my words a little mixed up, and I didn't quite say that the way that he said it, so I'm re-saying it. And for those of you listening by video or downloading this sermon, I hope you're listening to today's in to balance last week's so that you know that we're faithful here in exegeting the Word, the Scripture. Let me put it that way. So let's, let's bring this full circle now. The Bible is not the foundation of your faith. An event is. Jesus Christ came to this earth, died, was buried, and rose again. And that's where our faith begins and ends. The scriptures came 350 years after that as far as a collection of books bound where we could all have it in our homes individually. They never had that in their churches. Didn't have it. And yet their faith grew. They performed miracles and signs and wonders. How did they do that without this? How did they do? They did it by the Spirit, and they did it by listening to the Scriptures that were taught in the temple and from house to house. And they did it by something so powerful, so life-changing. This little woman spoke about it in her skit about the mother of Jesus and giving birth. They simply believed on Jesus. Their faith was in Jesus, not an interpretation. Dear ones, do you realize that's why you can gather with your Mormon neighbors and have a dinner? That's why you can gather with somebody down the street who's from a different denomination than you are. That's why you should feel free to go to lunch with somebody that doesn't interpret some of the Bible just the way you do. Because, dear ones, your faith doesn't rest on the, on the Scripture or on an interpretation. Christianity rests on Jesus alone and what He did when He died for us. Christianity is not based. The, the, uh, Christianity and your faith, both, are not based on the Bible. They're based on a person, Jesus Christ. In concert now, take that and combine it with that God found fault with the first covenant. So it's become obsolete and he gave us a new one. Why? Because it all points to Jesus. All our experiences all our methods, all our practices should be wrapped up in one thing. His name is Jesus. Not in a private interpretation of the Bible, but in Jesus. Now, there are absolutes in the Scripture that we will argue, that we will fight for. But there's also a lot of interpretations. And so, this now throws us back to chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Romans that I spent the last five weeks sort of dissecting and breaking apart and telling you everybody doesn't agree on the outcome of these verses. Early church fathers don't necessarily all agree on heaven, hell, wrath, judgment, 
water baptism. But they do agree on one thing. Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus hung on a cross. He took my sins and he died and he rose again. Is it possible that if we've had something that serious as how we think about the Bible and our understanding of Old and New Covenants, if we've had it skewed, if we've, if we've had some wrong ideas, is it possible that we could have some wrong ideas about Christmas? <laughs> All right, you ready? Let, I think we can have some fun. All right. But Christmas is kind of bittersweet for me because when I was a kid, my first time performing, I was six years old. And uh, I was performing in our Christmas pageant at church, and I had one line in one song. It was the song, Do You Hear What I Hear? And I messed it up. I sang, a child, a child, sleeping in the night with a tail as big as a kite. That's not the way that song goes, ladies and gentlemen. People get mad when you sing about baby Jesus with a tail. Think about that song, Do You Hear What I Hear? It's Psycho. Who wrote that? Said the little lamb to the shepherd boy. I think the shepherd boy's been in the field a little too long, don't you? <laughs> Talking to the sheep. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, we got to tell the mighty king. It's worse, they go to the mighty king, you know. A child, a child, shivers in the cold. Let us bring him silver and gold. How about a blanket? How about some soup? Child shivered in the cold! Throw some gold on him, he'll be fine. <laughs> he's got pneumonia, but he's loaded. That kid is gonna be some. <laughs> My mind just works differently. I, I mean, if I weren't a preacher, I'd want to be a comedian. I, I really would. I just, I love Tim. If you ever get a chance to see him live, do yourself a favor and go. Did you know that the three kings weren't kings that went to visit Jesus? <laughs> I mean, picture any nativity scene. We fight over these things, right? I mean, Christians march. <laughs> Don't take down our nativity scene. <laughs> and three quarters of what's in the nativity scene's wrong. <laughs> They've got three kings there. Frankincense, myrrh, Eastern stuff. They weren't kings. They were magi. We call them astrologers. That's why they were scanning the sky in the first place and the Lord used the stars to get their attention. They were astronomers. Did I say astrologers? There's a difference. They were astronomers. 
they studied the stars in the sky. It doesn't say that there were three of them, by the way. When you look at any nativity scene, you've got the barn and the animals and the manger and the baby and, you know, some family and you've got the three kings and you've got the shepherds. We know about the shepherds. They were important. They got the message that Jesus was going to be born to a virgin. Did you know that those magi that they picture in the nativity scenes, they weren't even there yet. They didn't come for a year later. Because Herod was after every child two years and younger. That's, that's what tipped Herod off to the fact that there was a child, a new child, a newborn being proclaimed king. So he was at least a year old. But every nativity has those three wise men, astronomers, right there at the nativity. Here's one for you. We'll blow your mind with this one. There was no inn and no innkeeper. Hence, Jesus wasn't born in a barn, and he wasn't born in a cave. Some of you are going to go home and look at your nativity scenes completely different. Oh, man, I just paid $500 for that porcelain set of the nativity. It's okay. Put it on Craigslist. The Greek term translated in, kataluma, had multiple meanings, and it's used only one other time in all of the New Testament, however. It's found in Mark's Gospel 14, 14, and Luke's Gospel chapter 22, verse 11, where it's referring to Jesus having his last supper with his disciples. And where was that? in an upper room. Correct? So when it says there was no room for Jesus in the inn, it wasn't talking about a hotel. And so then, of course, they made their way out to the barn with the animals. It also doesn't say that. That's presumed. They meant the upper rooms of a family member, most likely Joseph Sr., who was, because of the season, had a lot of people over. And the people slept upstairs in the inn, the kataluma, the upper room, where Jesus also had the Last Supper, the only other time the word is used in the Bible. So he didn't come to an inn. They tried to find room in the upper room where people slept in those days of the homes. But at the same time, downstairs on the lower floors, it was very customary and still is today to keep animals, to bring them in from the cold. So when it says that there was no room for them in the upper rooms because all the other relatives were there and had taken it up, they went downstairs to where some of the animals were on the lower floors. And yes, they took baby Jesus after he was born, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and put him in a 
now you're afraid to answer because you're thinking, look, we're still friends. Okay, I'm still going to go out with you. I hope you'll still come to my home. I hope you'll come back next Sunday. It's really not that bad. Okay, but just, you know, there's some myths about Christmas. Why? Because we don't exegete it, the word, and scripture, that is, and, and we don't critically examine. We, don't, we never ask questions about what we think we know because it's so commonly known and held to be true, to be doctrine, to be theology. And that gets us in all kinds of trouble. So they took him and they laid him in a manger, which was simply a feeding trough where hay was kept for the animals that they had brought in from the cold that were on the lower floors. No innkeeper, no barn, no cave, no kings. Jeff, I don't know if I'll recover this Christmas. You know what? There is one thing, though. No matter how anybody interprets the Scripture or how they exegete it or what myths we may have believed, there's one thing that's for certain. Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth. He lived. He performed signs and wonders and miracles. He demonstrated the life that we can have. He wasn't just an example for us. He was an example of us. Oh, that'll sink in. (laughs) And then, at the end of his life, in obedience to what was prophesied long before the foundation of the world, that he as a lamb would be slain. He willingly hung on a cross. Not for your sins, but for the sin. Everything contrary to the moral law of God. He took it along with the laws themselves, the old covenant, And he nailed it to a tree. He canceled it. It no longer has any bearing in your life. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. It's now obsolete. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8, Angelo, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because there's no more moral code condemning you. He took it. He nailed it to the cross. And we all now are in him. That there is no argument about. That we know is true. So celebrate well this Christmas. Enjoy your gifts and your gift giving. Enjoy your family members. Enjoy the ornaments and the nativity scene. And Somebody needs to redo it. But let's be sure that this Christmas we truly celebrate the reason And it's all about Jesus. Let's bow our heads.